When I was in, uh, when I finished university, in between the time that I finished school and uh, Cindy and I went into the Peace Corps, I worked for a little while uh, with a seed company. And uh, I worked in a mill. And it wasn't the mill that would like grind uh, stuff into flour. We would harvest, the farmers would harvest peas. It was a, specifically for, for peas that you'd like, you'd buy and you'd plant on your own. And, uh, and so the, the seed, the peas had to be milled, which meant they had to be cleaned and separated so that you just had the pure seed at the end. And the milling was done, like, once we got all the seed in, the milling was done 24-7. And so we had, that was, we had the shift work. And the first night that I was, uh, had night shift on the mill, I didn't have any experience with it, really. And the guy, uh, the boss uh, who was going to show me what to do wasn't really available that night. And so this is what he tells me. I go in, and, and he goes, well... I don't have much time to really show you what to do, but it's pretty self-explanatory. I just hope it goes better for you than it did the last guy. And then he walked out. <laughs> and it left me with a lot of questions. You know, I was like, but wait a minute, what? What about what happened? And he was gone. And uh, I spent that entire evening like, making sure I did everything right, but just totally stressed out because I was wondering, well, what went wrong with the last guy? And how long did it go? I mean, did he lose any digits or, or did he just kind of mess things up? And, uh, and I never, he never really did uh, fill out what, the, what he was talking about there. And I find that as we finish the, the letter of 1 John, in the last chapters here, he covers a lot of things and he does kind of a similar thing. He's, he makes these statements and then he just moves on and, and doesn't really fill it out. And even though the, the last bit here is only about, mm, about eight verses... There's so much that's kind of left hanging there that uh, when I wrote this sermon, I, I called it, you know, final thoughts. And then I had to write in pen after getting done on prayer because that's as far as I got because he leaves a whole lot of things kind of hanging out there. And so as he ends uh, the letter of 1 John, and if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through this. Uh, he covers several areas. Again, he touches on, <coughs> excuse me, he touches on them. Can someone get me a glass of water? But he doesn't, really, uh, he doesn't really flesh them out. And in fact, the way that the letter of 1 John ends totally kind of leaves you hanging, which I think, in my personal opinion, and not just my opinion, the opinion of a lot of people, there's an ending part that we're missing because he ends the second letter of John and the third letter of John much more like you would expect. He gives his final greetings and he ends. But the letter of 1 John just ends with a sentence about idols and that's it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read through the whole final section, but we won't go through the whole thing. We'll just get through the first part, which talks about encouragement in the faith and, um, and prayer, and then we'll uh, look at the other parts later. But let's read through this. So if you have your Bibles, you like to follow along, or you can just look up here. Uh, it's in 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 13. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. Thank you, Janine. Sorry about that. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask... We know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, 
he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin which does not lead to death. Then he moves on. See, you know what I mean by he just kind of plonks this thing down there and then moves on. You're like, how many of you are wondering, well, what, what is he talking about? What is that sin that leads to death? What does he mean? What? And then he goes, and we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, but one who's been born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him, and we are in him who is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. That's how the letter ends. So you can see in there, there's, there's some questions in there, right? He just kind of makes these statements, and you're wondering, well, what, what do you mean by that? How do we flesh this thing out? And so we're going to go through it, and today we're just going to get through the first couple of verses where he talks about being encouraged, and then also when he talks about prayer. So one of the things that John wants to make clear as he writes this letter and as he finishes this letter is that he was doing this to lift people up in their faith. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. John wants to make sure that, that the people reading this are encouraged. They're not discouraged. And I can understand where he's coming from because I can tell you that it is really easy to discourage people in their faith, especially when you're someone that people kind of look to for some kind of spiritual guidance, be it a pastor or, in this case, you know, one of the original 12 apostles. It's easy to discourage people, even when you don't mean to. For example, last week I ended the sermon uh, talking about how the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, should, the, the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit is that our character should be, should, we should see a change in who we are that reflects the character of Christ. And the character of Christ is pretty much summed up in the fruits of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit, but the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you've been here for a while, uh, you've heard me say that little list numerous times, hopefully to the point where you start to get it memorized yourself. These are the characteristics of Christ, and everyone who is in Christ should see their character developing in these areas. Now, it's not like a balloon that blows up and we're equally developing in all these areas at the same time. You know, sometimes it's a little bit lopsided because we have a natural kind of inclinations. Some people are just like inclined to be more patient than others. Some people are inclined to be more gentle than others. Some people are inclined to be more joyful than others. But we should see these things growing as a whole. But while I say that, and while that's a fairly basic teaching... I'm acutely aware that when we start going down the road of telling folks what they should experience, you're setting people up for possible disappointment when they feel like, as they review their lives, that they aren't experiencing these things. And then they come and they begin worried about their salvation, like, am I really a believer or not? And I can tell you, after being in this, you know, being a pastor for quite a while now, that sometimes it is true. Sometimes people aren't seeing what you would expect to see in a, in a growing relationship with Christ because they're not in a relationship with Christ. 
Uh, you can go to church for a long time and, and never really give your life to Christ because giving your life to Christ means you're willing to die to self so that, that Christ will live in you. And this is a sacrifice that sometimes is hard for people to either understand or it's a sacrifice that's hard for people to make because they think, I like what I've got. I like my life. And they think that somehow they're going to lose out on something by giving their life to Christ. And it's a step of faith to believe that what God has for you is better than what you could possibly want for yourself. But that's a step of faith. A lot of people struggle in believing that. They think, well, God's just going to take away stuff from me instead of what God is going to give you. But also, and this is far more often, usually with people who are involved uh, in the church on a regular basis, people tend to get discouraged because they focus more on where they are failing instead of where they are growing. It's our human nature to, especially if you have a degree of humility within you, and most people have some degree of humility, that humility tends to get twisted to a place where we just focus on our failures, and we just look at ourselves in those places of failure, instead of being able to objectively step back and look at the places where we are growing. Uh, I've, I've been starting to ask people when I counsel with them, because I found it interesting. You know, we all kind of have these conversations that we hold within our heads. It's not like we're hearing voices, but you know, we kind of hold these conversations within our heads. And I often ask folks, are these conversations when you're kind of reviewing yourself or they're talking about you, are these negative or are they positive? In other words, is your self-talk negative? Do you kind of walk around and beat yourself up all the time? Man, I failed this. I'm a worm here. I should be better there. Or is it positive? And I have yet to run into a person that says, no, my, that, that conversation that goes on in my head is positive. Everyone I've talked to, and I haven't talked to everybody. I've only talked to maybe 10 or so people about it. It's always negative. I find that kind of astonishing. We're our own worst enemy when it comes to stuff like this. You know, it's not other people that tear us down. We tear ourselves down. And, we just, and I don't know what it is about us. As human beings, we're kind of drawn to the dark a little bit more. You know, like news. News is always negative because if news is positive, people find it boring. If you look on Netflix, every show is this dark, dystopian thing now. That's the thing. Everything is dark and dystopian. Even something as silly as like Archie comics, which if you were a kid, if you are my age, you remember as a kid, you know, it was like Archie and Jughead and all that. Now they have this thing on Netflix, which is, you know, Jughead and Archie, they're like murderers and stuff like that. It's crazy. Everything is dark. We're just kind of drawn to it. There's a song called Dirty Laundry uh, that... Don Henley did. He says, it's interesting when people die. We like dirty laundry. But the truth is, if we want to be in a healthy place, we have to focus on what God is doing. That's why one of the scriptures talks about we should speak to each other in psalms and spiritual songs because we have to lift one another up, but you also need to lift where God is doing the good things in your life up as well. And it's easy to get discouraged. And it's easy to look at someone that writes something like the Apostle John did and look at it and just find all the places of failure instead of being able to step back and say, but in these places I'm growing and God be great, you know, God is great and you're glorified, Lord. And so he wants them to understand why he's writing this. And then he goes on because he wants them to have confidence when it comes to how they approach God. And again, this is one of those areas that I think, especially if you grow up sort of with a distant understanding of God, that we often think that God is, if, if he's approachable at all, you approach him with a lot of fear. And, and when the Bible talks about fear and trembling, it doesn't mean you're afraid of him like you're afraid of 
uh, an axe murderer. It means you go into the presence of God knowing that he is powerful and that his will is going to be done. But you don't go in there afraid that he hates you. And I think that's where a lot of people find fear. They believe that God hates them somehow. And so when they enter into his presence, they're entering into the presence of someone that they're not sure really loves them. As much as the Bible tries to say over and over again, God loves you, we tend to approach him, or a lot of people tend to approach him with a fear of like, does he really? And so John goes on to say the reason why he wants them to be encouraged, it says this, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. I'm going to spend the rest of today's sermon talking about these verses here, and particularly the Apostle John's approach to prayer. I've been a Christian for well over 30 years now. 86 is when I became a Christian. And I can tell you that one of the things that I struggle with, not theologically and not even relationally, but just kind of getting my head around it is the concept of prayer. What's going on here when we talk about prayer? Now, you have lots of different approaches to prayer. And, they're not, and most of them are, are good, but it but can be very different. For example, there's a guy named D. Duke in Oregon. He was near the town that I lived in when I was pastoring there. He was pastor of this church in a town called Jefferson. And the astonishing thing about this church was that it was out in the middle of the country. It was way off the beaten path in the middle of nowhere. And yet there were more people that attended the church than were in, than were in the entire town of Jefferson. Now, that's not saying a lot. Jefferson was small. But still, to have more people attend the church than lived in the entire town, that's pretty, that, that ratio is pretty impressive. And it was actually quite a large church. It was about 1,000 people that were in this church. And it was everything that a church, uh, if some church growth specialists would say it should not be. It was off the main road. It was hard to get to. There, we didn't have the whole internet thing going on then, being online. And yet, almost 1,000 people attended that in a town of about 250 people. And his big thing was prayer. And he, would, he, would, he was an interesting guy. He was very goal-oriented. He would make a list of goals uh, for every year of his life, he'd make this list of goals. So as he got older, the goals that he wanted to accomplish that year got bigger. And he, and he didn't waste any time. He just, you know, he believed that, you know, uh, my life is to be lived kind of in this phonetic pace. And so he would go down this list of goals and he prayed and prayed and prayed. That was his thing. He prayed two hours a day. And the church grew. So obviously a lot of people would come and they kind of want to know what's the secret. Because that's kind of, that, that's, that's how church people think, well, what's the secret? What has he got happening that's having the church grow? And so he held seminars on prayer all the time. And he had this view of prayer that if you kind of, if you view like these scales and there's the issue, uh, he, he viewed each prayer like putting a pebble in the other side of the scale so that eventually that scale would tip and the thing would happen. And so he was really big into to praying in small groups. The small groups would pray little sentence prayers. He would, he would say, pray about this topic. Each person in their little group would pray about that topic. And in his mind, there's like these little pebbles going in until the scales tipped. He had an almost mechanical view of prayer. Now, it was deeper than that. But if you went to his first seminar, that's kind of what you would get, this kind of tipping of the scales. Then you have people that believe that prayer is just all about you 
believing that it's going to be done. And that if you believe that it's going to be done with enough fervor and with enough passion and enough emotion, then it will happen. And so these are the folks that will often, it's kind of this name it and claim it type prayer. And so if you're like, we're going to connect it to healing, because healing is a big one, like we play with the whole God. You hear things like this, Lord, we call upon you to heal our sister, remove this cancer from her life, and we praise you, Lord, that you have already done this. Hallelujah! And they begin to praise the Lord for having already answered the prayer that they asked. And I've always felt like this is like my son coming, Dad, I want a new car, and thank you, Dad, for giving me the new car. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, Junior. And he's like, no, I don't need to wait. Hallelujah for the keys. And I, and, uh, and I can tell you that pastorally, this kind of prayer is a little bit difficult because when it doesn't happen the way that you so confidently said it's going to happen, the folks that prayed that prayer usually are nowhere to be found. Or if they are to be found and you say, well, you, you prayed this confidently and it, it didn't happen, then the, the immediately they'll say this because you lacked faith. So the person who is afflicted is accused of lacking the faith. So on top of the affliction, now they get this gut punch, which says, well, the reason why you aren't healed is you didn't have the faith. And then they just leave them. And then they come to me with tears in their eyes, wondering if they're even saved at all. And then you have the other extreme. You have people that take this passage out of Matthew, which is Jesus speaking here. And Jesus says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, <laughs> for they think they will be heard because of their many words. You see, this, you see this babbling on like pagan thing, many words going on in the church all the time. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. Ask Him. So then from this approach, I've had people say, well, why pray at all? God knows what you need before you ask Him. What do we need to pray for? So you have these different approaches to things, and people can be very passionate about it. And I think one of the reasons why we see these different avenues and approaches in the Bible is because prayer is a thing that is, is very relational. And it's hard to just kind of make a mechanic understanding of relationship. I know this because like it, I do a lot of marital counseling, and while there's a certain formula to how men are and how women are, and in fact, in the next women's uh, journey meeting, we're going to be talking a little bit, I'm going to be talking to women about kind of basically how men think. That's right, brothers, I'm going to be giving away our secrets. But it's not mechanical. You know, you can't just kind of go into a, a relationship and say, follow these mechanics and everything is going to be fine. Because within those mechanics, there's relationship. And I think prayer is very similar to that. That there are certain kind of mechanics to it. Jesus teaches us how to pray. But then within that, there's also this relational aspect. And John, the apostle, he has Jesus saying this. So you, so you look at what he, he has, Matthew has him saying, do not keep babbling on like pagans because they think they'll be heard from many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then John has Jesus uh, telling, saying this about prayer. I tell you the truth. This is out of the gospel of John. I tell you the truth, that anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. So there's this kind of relational thing, you do what I'm doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. 
And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And then he goes on in verse uh, chapter 15. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be given to you. And I believe that it was confusion around this kind of thing of prayer and like what does it mean and people were asking things in Jesus' name just like we do and it wasn't happening. Then it becomes this issue of faith. Am I doing something wrong? Are my mechanics off? Is my relationship off? What's going on? I think that's why John kind of clears this up a little bit in his letter. He says, this is the confidence we have approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. I think this according to his will is an important clarification. Jesus never means that God is the celestial Santa Claus. And we can just ask whatever we want. It's just going to rain, you know, Ferraris and fur coats from heaven, if that's what you would ask for. And even more on a, on a, on a less uh, selfish level, it doesn't mean that everyone you pray for is going to be healed. And I think sometimes we forget that in the New Testament, where we see all these miracles, there were certain prayers that were not answered. For example, Peter and James are arrested early in the book of Acts. They're taken into prison. Peter is miraculously set free through the presence of an angel. James is put to the sword. Did Jesus love Peter and not James? The Apostle Paul asks many times for a thorn in his side. That's how he describes it. I have this thorn in my side to be removed. And he says, I prayed for it again and again and again. And the Apostle Paul is a guy that healed people. He even uh, raised a kid who had fallen asleep during a sermon and fell out of a window from the dead. I mean, I just wish I could wake people up sometimes, but Paul can raise him from the dead. And yet his thorn in his side, finally the, the, the Holy Spirit told him, you need to stop praying about this because my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, you're not going to be healed in the sense that you want to be healed, but my grace is going to see you through it. There were times in the early church where there was famine going on. Uh, in fact, the, the church in Philippi gave a large gift to the church in Jerusalem because there was famine going on. And during that time of famine, you know, people were suffering. It didn't just go away. People were rounded up and arrested. Christians were persecuted. The Emperor Nero, which is kind of a, it was late in Paul's life, the Emperor Nero, he would tie Christians to a post and set them on fire in order to light up his courtyard. Sometimes we think that in the early church, everything was answered and everything was unicorns and sunshine, and it wasn't. And it's very difficult for us to get our minds around why would it be God's will that some of these things happen, which to our minds are just terrible things, horrible things, especially when they revolve around death. It's hard to get that because in our minds, we often see death as just a horrible, horrible thing. And this, this praying according to its, our, God's will, one time I, I was talking to a fellow who was doing the kind of name it and claim it prayer. I was saying, you know, he would just say, you know, God is going to do this, and then he'd begin to hallelujah about it. I, was, I told him one time, you know, 
you should be praying if it's God's will for these things to happen. And he immediately shot back. He says, if you have to pray that it's God's will, then that's a weak prayer. That's just finding the excuse to be satisfied with God not answering your prayer. That's weakness. That's not faith. I said, well, Jesus prayed that way. He prayed that way three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you can take this cup from me, please do so. But not my will, but your will be done. He said, no, that's a weak prayer. It's a weak prayer. And I can kind of understand what he's saying. Because he's basically saying, his idea was, well, if you're kind of saying, Lord, you know, may this thing happen. But if it doesn't, we're already setting, we're already kind of giving ourselves the excuse to, uh, in case we're disappointed. And he's like, remove, remove the safety net of excuse and just say, it's going to happen. But I don't see that that's how the scripture talks about it. But the scripture is not talking about anything according to his will as a safety net of disappointment. I believe what he's talking about here is that we are to be in such close relationship with God that we know what it is he wants. And you might be saying, how is that possible? Can we ever be in this close relationship with God that we kind of know what he wants? And the scripture would say, yes. As you die to self and the Holy Spirit lives in you, the Apostle Paul calls it having the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. He also says in Romans chapter 12, he says, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. The expectation of the scripture is that indeed the Holy Spirit can so transform us into the very, uh, into more Christ's character that we can understand what God's will is. Jesus said to his disciples, I don't do anything on my own. I only do what the Father has shown me. And he says, and I don't say anything on my own. I only say what the Father has given me to say. This is part of Jesus trying to explain to his apostles who he is as the word of God made flesh. He wasn't a free agent. He did what the Father showed him. He said what the Father told him. He was in such perfect unity with the will of the Father that he knew what it is God wanted. And that is available to us through the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, then why aren't we all just like, why aren't we there yet? Well, because unlike Jesus, we are all very affected by the power of sin in the world. Sin affects the way we see everything. If you remember from a few weeks ago, I did this sermon where I said, you know, you see the world through the way you were raised by your family, through influential people, through your education, through teachers, through coaches, through uh, your friends and peers, through books, through media, and all those things, every single one of them, are tainted by sin. And so the way you see the world, the lenses that you see it through, and you have kind of a compounding of all these different lenses, it's all influenced by sin. The only thing that isn't influenced by sin is God. And when you think about the time that you spend in being influenced by this world around you and the time you spend focusing on the things of God, I think most of us would say there are far more hours spent focused being influenced by the things of the world than we are the things of God. For example, if I were to ask, do you watch, which do you do more of throughout the week at some point? And, and some of you uh, might be able to say one thing, but I think a lot, if I said, do you watch TV or YouTube or Netflix, whatever, do you watch that more 
Are the hours spent there more than the hours spent in prayer? Probably most of us are going, yeah, I'll be the first to admit it. Yeah. So what does that mean? Well, it means I'm being influenced. More hours of influence are coming from this point of view, which is not necessarily godly, than in my relationship, my direct time with God. And then you add on that if you're working, that work environment, or you're going to school, or you got all these different things where you're getting these different points of view. You know, we, we are in a battle. And this is something that's forgotten in prayer, that we are in a battle. And we have an active enemy. And when I say we are our own worst enemy, and I mean that in the sense that, you know, we don't, very often Satan doesn't have to come and, like, do something in our life to, to make us drift away from God. We do it to ourselves. But if we don't do it to ourselves, he'll come in and he'll find a way to kind of mess things up. He loves to disrupt, especially relationships, because in our broken relationships with human beings and people we're supposed to be close to, like our spouses, when that's disrupted, then we'll find that our, our relationship with God is very deeply disrupted. And so, you know, we are in this battle, and we are influenced by things. And so we have to realize that. I think sometimes we're a bit naive when it comes to our prayers, that we think that, well, you know, it's just, it's just trying to get God to, to move in the way we want it. And it's like, well, right now, it's a fallen world. There will come a time when that changes. But it's not the way it is now. We're in a battle. That's why if you have parents and you have young children, you need to pray for your children. I'm always kind of surprised that people sometimes in their minds sort of think that Satan is a noble, kind of a noble adversary and that children are hands off. He's not going to mess with them. No, he will totally mess with them. He will mess with them. He'll try to tear them down. He'll try and put thoughts into their minds that are going to corrupt them. And it's happening now in our society where they're being taught this crazy stuff about what it means to be transgender and all that. From a very young age, they're already getting this into their heads. This isn't going to be healthy. The bill is going to come in about 10 to 15 years. It's already come in Sweden. That's why Sweden has stopped doing some of the things that now the United States, Germany, and the rest of the world are just entering into by giving teenagers these puberty blockers and things like that. Sweden, who is by far... Not a right-wing country, right? Would we agree Sweden is not a right-wing country? They've said we're not doing this anymore because they did it for 10 to 15 years. They have the science to look back on it and go, this didn't work. But no one wants to listen to them. But your kids are being taught this. And if you think that Satan's an, a, a noble enemy, you're dreaming. So the point of prayer that Jesus is trying to give us here is that we need to be closely related to God in order to know what he wants. And then this brings up other questions. People say, well, then if God already knows, you know, what he wants, and the scripture says that he knows what we need before we even ask, why do we have to even be involved in this? Why doesn't God just do it? And a lot of that is because God wants us to be involved. Part of being created in the image of God is that we have the privilege to participate with God in his kingdom work. It begins in Genesis with Adam, if you read the story in Genesis, Adam names the animals. And, uh, and sometimes people just, they read right past that without seeing the significance of it. The significance in the Hebrew thought of naming something is that when you named it, you gave it its character. This is why Jesus and God would often rename people in the Bible. When he would, like Simon becomes Peter. When he would rename them, he's, he's saying, this is the character I see in you. Even if it wasn't there yet. Even if, like Simon who becomes Peter, even if he wasn't the rock right away, Jesus sees that this is what he's going to become. 
And this happens in the Old Testament too. Abram gets renamed Abraham. Uh, Jacob is renamed Israel. That's where, the, that's where the name Israel, the people of Israel, Jacob's renamed Israel. Because there's a, there's a character that God sees in them. When Adam names the animals, he is participating in the creative aspect of God. And we are allowed to continue to be part of that by going to the Lord in prayer. By going to the Lord in prayer, we are joining with him in his kingdom work. And that is what he allows us to do. Dogs, as wonderful as they are, and as much as Germans love dogs, dogs are not invited to be part of the creative work of God. Doesn't mean that they don't dream. People always say, well, what, do they have a soul? Am I going to see my dog in heaven? I don't know those answers. I know they dream because I've seen my dog. You know, they're chasing something in their sleep. Obviously, they have emotion. But they don't have this conscious idea that they are participating in the creative work of God, at least not from what I can tell. You know, I've asked them, uh, do you feel the presence of the Lord? So, kind of to wrap this up a little bit, there's lots of approaches to prayer, and I can't stand up here and tell you this is it. I know how D. Duke used to do it. Pray, 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 tip the scales. I've heard other people, and I don't disagree with, with uh, I'm not saying he was wrong, but that was, his, that was his approach. I've heard the people say, just pray, name it and claim it. You know, have faith, just shout it out in God's name and it'll be done. <laughs> okay, I have the folks that say, we don't need to pray at all. He, scripture says he already knows what we need. So this is what I do. And I'm not telling you that you should do it my way either, but this is how I understand it, because this is the, one of the areas I struggle with and I've always struggled with. How does this prayer thing work? So I approach God as a child would approach a parent. As I've gotten older, somewhat ironically, I've seen God more and more like a parent, like a father, good father. I know some of you have come from backgrounds, your father, your earthly dad could have been abusive or was difficult or said things into your life which were harsh, and it's almost hard for you to see God the Father in a benevolent way. But just remember, God the Father is not your earthly father. Your earthly father was a sinner, just like you are. And sometimes in his sin, he probably did things, he may have done things that were abusive. But I approach God as a father. And having been a parent myself, I know what it means to love your children deeply. And many of you are parents, so you can identify with this. You love your children deeply. But you're not going to give them everything they ask for. Because oftentimes they ask for things that's not good for them. And so as a parent, they'll come up and they'll say, Daddy, can I have, you know, a horse? It's like, well, sweetheart, we live in an apartment. Yeah. But I want a horse. I, I get that. It looks like a lot of fun. But now you're not going not gonna to have a horse. So don't you love me? I do love you. But we live in an apartment. And then there are times they'll ask for something that's just like bad for them. You know, I want, you know, I think, you know, you know, and maybe I've kind of gone off on a bit too much, but I think social media is a devastating thing to our young people. And like for them to say, I want something that will allow me to have more access to social media, I would say, I love you, so I'm going to say no on that one. But sometimes they'll ask for something, and yeah, sure, why not? You know, 
And I'll give it to him. It's not like everything is no. But every answer, be it yes or no, is based in love. And I think that's one of the ways that I've learned to approach prayer in, in such a way that it doesn't, I don't see God's will as just being the safety net so that disappointment, I have an excuse for disappointment. I view it that God is my father. And there are times when he's going to say no. And the reasons why he says no may not be something that I understand. But he does it out of love. And there will be times he says yes. And he does it out of love. And in my faith walk, there have been times when I feel like I've known what God's will is in something. It's easy when it's in the scripture. Like, I can tell you that it's God's will. It is clearly God's will that a Christian marriage should glorify him. That they should stay together and it should glorify him. I know that's within his will. And yet within that knowledge that this is within his will are two people who are themselves accountable in their relationship with God and with each other that I don't control. So I can pray, Lord God, I know it's your will for this marriage to stay together. But I can't control whether or not these people truly walk within the, the, the will of God themselves. I don't control that. I can control in my own marriage, my part, and so it's deep, right? It's complicated. But does this mean we shouldn't talk to God? Should we just say, well, you are too complicated, man. I'm not talking to you. Of course not. A lot of the complication in our relationship with God is our own complication. Who we are is complicated. And I find it interesting that, and we won't get into this today. We'll get into this next week. But I find it interesting that as John transitions from prayer, he doesn't talk about things like healing. He doesn't talk about receiving uh, material things. He doesn't talk about things like that. He talks about when you see your brother and sister who are walking in a place of sin, then you should pray for them. You can tell where his priorities are as opposed to sometimes our general priorities. He goes right from talking about prayer into this. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. And then he starts talking about what, he's, what he means by that. He tries to fill in uh, this I the idea of sin. And he, I think in my mind, he kind of creates more questions than he does answer them. So we're going to go into it more deeply next week. But it's interesting that where he focuses isn't on the things that we tend to focus on. He focuses on people's relationship with God. And he says, if you see a brother or sister who's walking away from their relationship with God, they've committed a sin that does not lead to death, then there's still hope for them because they're alive, is a, I think is what he, part of what he's saying. This is a complicated passage. We'll get into it next week. But that you should pray for them. He's much more concerned about going back to this place of we need to be closely related to God in order to be the church and to be the people that God wants us to be. And he says, and if you see someone who's not closely related to God, they're drifting away because of sin, then you should pray for them. And this becomes, from this point on, his emphasis of prayer, praying for those who are in the community of faith, who are sinning and drifting away. Not about your finances, not about your job, not about healing, not about you know, all the th world peace, the things we tend to pray for. It says pray for those that you see drifting away. How often do we do that? 
I think sometimes we don't pray for those drifting away because we're afraid we're going to be judgmental, right? So we're all caught up. Well, I can't be judgmental. Judge not, yes, you be judged by the same measure. So I'm not going to make any kind of judgment. I'm just going to see this person go walk off the cliff and go, hey, man, find yourself. Find your truth. That's not what the Bible means when it says, judge not, yes, you be judged. But we think it is. So we're going to close there, and we'll talk more about this passage next week because this one opens up a lot of questions. But again, it's interesting that where John is concerned is this area regarding sin where we tend to focus on other issues. So I want to close today by prayer. We'll close in prayer. And uh, we're going to pray kind of in the vein that the Apostle John shows us to pray. So uh, let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for this strange but wonderful thing that you allow us to do to come to you in prayer and lord we know that your scripture uh you know our lord told us that there are things that you know we need before we even ask we don't need to try and manipulate you through endless repetition or (laughs) the scripture says babbling like pagans But Father, we do pray in these difficult times, in these weird times in our society, and there's always something going on. But Lord, uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters that are struggling with the message of the world, and, and the message of the world is overwhelming their souls, and they're drifting away from you. And they're being told things like, well, if you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, if you believe that marriage is to be between a man and a woman, biological man, biological woman, that, you know, who we are as created by God is good, that we're somehow narrow-minded and hateful. And Lord, we pray that the church would have the message of truth, And not truth as we define it, because, Lord, when we try and take your word and say, this is the truth that I understand, it almost always goes wrong. But, Lord, we could just look at what your word says and trust that what you said is enough, that your grace is enough, your word is enough. We don't need to try and bend over backwards to define things or interpret it. It's pretty clear in most things. And, Lord, may we not make things overly complicated. So we come to you as children. We come to you as our Father. God, we don't know everything you know. We don't have the spiritual maturity that you have. We don't have the depth of knowledge of wisdom that you have. We don't understand uh, everything uh, that you've created scientifically. We don't understand everything you have done morally, spiritually. We are like little children. But as your little children, we do ask for some things, hoping and praying that it be your will, because we don't see any reason why it shouldn't be. And one is for our brother Holgarth. God, we pray that you would, you would heal his arm. And I know I just said that we don't eat. That that's not where John prays a lot, but it is a concern of ours because of relationship. Not just because of the fact that he has a broken arm, but because he's our brother. And, uh, and because he is our brother in Christ, we pray that you would bring wholeness to his body, remove pain from him, And God, that his arm healing would be a witness to the world around him, to the doctors and to others, that you are indeed the living God. We ask for that. 
Lord, we ask for it. You know, may your will be done. Because healing is kind of one of those places, Lord, that we don't really know 100% is it always your will. Because we know you didn't heal the Apostle Paul. And if you didn't heal him, well, then we have to be open to the fact that sometimes it might be no, but we pray that it's not. We do pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling in the marriages that they have. And it's not just one, it's not just two. Father, marriage is hard. And uh, we thank you for the blessing of it, but wow, it is not easy. And we pray because we do know it's your will that as Christians that our marriages are to represent Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ, and you want them to be healthy. You want them to be glorifying to you. You want people to, of the world to look at our relationships with our mar- spouses and see in them something that is deep and beautiful and rich that would draw them to know who you are. And yet, Lord, you know as well as we do, and I'm not surprising most people here, that we struggle, Father, with marriages. The divorce rate among Christians is not any better than the divorce rate among non-Christians. And that's tragic. And we know it's your will for that to be different. Father, we pray for our children who right now are in this just bizarre time where everything is being redefined and what it means to be a male, what it means to be a female is just all up in the air. And there may be even some people here that feel like this is a hater thing to say, but Lord, it is a confusing thing to people and to these kids. And having been a child of... uh, who saw the results of the sexual revolution, which wasn't good. Lord, I'm concerned about this particular revolution of gender. Lord, I pray. I pray for parents who are feeling confused by this, who are getting the message. I pray for the kids who are being told that this is all good. Pray for these governments that are making these decisions to say things like, well, we can have children as young as 13, not inform their parents, and yet be given the same kind of drugs to stop puberty that they use to castrate chemically pedophiles, and that this is all okay. Father, we pray that you would help believers with loving but firmness stand and say, this is, this is not healthy. And Lord God, that we can be not haters and all the stuff that people want to call us, but people who love. And in the name of love, say, you need to put the brakes on some of this. And Father, we also pray for people who are drifting away, brothers and sisters, basically because of their own lack of willingness to deal with the sin in their life. And sometimes it's pride, sometimes it's hurt. But anyone who's been part of a church long enough knows that sometimes the most fervent and zealous people can suddenly just turn on a dime and and be angry and bitter. And very often it has to do with something that's gone on in their life. Maybe they know it. Maybe they're conscious of it. Maybe they're not. But we're no different. 
we've had people come, we've had people go, and not sometimes the going isn't because they're going to another job or another country. Sometimes they just went. And so, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in that struggle. And of course, when we pray these things, you know, you know our hearts, you know my heart. I'm not praying this from a, a, a mountaintop of perfection. Just doing what your word says to do. Knowing that I am also a child of grace. And we all need your grace because we all have areas in our lives. Father, I pray you'd help us all, me included, to want to spend more time with you than with Netflix. That I'd want to spend more time with you than with YouTube. That I'd want to spend more time with you than with Instagram. That we would all want to spend more time with you than with all the distractions that feed into our minds how we interpret the world around us. Sometimes we're accused of being brainwashed. God, wash our brains. I feel free. I can pray only for myself in this. God, I submit to you my brain. Wash it. Brainwash me all you want. Greater is he that is in the world in, the, in me than he that is in the world, but it feels like sometimes he that is in the world has more of a say, and I want that to change. In my life, the church's life, in the lives of people I care about. So, Father, we lift these things up to you in, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we come to you as our Father. You are called Father for a reason. If it's within your will, so if it's within your will, then it's clearly within your power to make things happen. And so we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who made it possible for us to enter into your presence with humility, but also with confidence. It's in Jesus' name we pray.